Hello, everyone. A little over nine years today, the Bitcoin landscape was very different. In fact, there was no crypto landscape. The term crypto hadn't yet existed, and we were living in a very much Bitcoin world. I was at the height of my own personal career, BitInstant. Uh, the, the first Bitcoin exchange that I had founded with my partner at the time was processing 30% of all Bitcoin transactions. I was traveling around the world speaking on behalf of the Bitcoin Foundation, like evangelizing Bitcoin and just doing what I thought was best for the whole Bitcoin community. The price was around $1,200. I was 22 years old or 23 years old. I thought that the way a lot of us felt actually in the last bull market, what had happened that fateful day, January 26, 2014, changed my life forever. I was coming home from a trip uh, overseas. I was speaking at a Bitcoin conference in Amsterdam. And as I was coming home to the United States, I was arrested and went through a seven-year criminal justice process, which I saw myself in federal prison for a little under two years, changed my life forever. And that day, the whole Bitcoin world changed because up until that point, no Bitcoin companies were taking identification or were like even asking for their customers' IDs. Things were very different. There was no such thing as accredited investors or KYC. It was a very different world. Bitcoin was considered airline miles. And when I got arrested, the community was going through the same thing that it's actually going through now. And we overcame that. But what was going through back then, we didn't know what was happening. The government was putting on Senate hearings. Mt. Gox was just shut down. Silk Road founder was arrested. I had just gotten arrested. BitInstant was shut down. It seemed like the bleakest moment in Bitcoin's history. But we got through it. Two years later, Ethereum launched. It was a beautiful day and crypto land was formed. Bitcoin we saw went to 69,000 and is continuing to grow today. Developer activity is just unbelievable growth and interoperability, agnosticity between all the chains and the developer communities and everything has just been unbelievable. I'm so grateful to have been a part of so many successes over the last 10 years, so many failures as well. I mean, more failures. But one thing has been true is you guys, my listeners and the followers, you guys have been by my side, just like my wife. And, and my friends from the beginning. So thank you guys. And I'm presenting a very special episode today. That day, the nine year anniversary of my arrest, I got a chance to go on stage at the same stage that I was arrested on, heading to Bitcoin Miami in 2014. Brock Pierce, Roger Veer, and a few other people were like waiting in the crowd for me to speak, but then I got arrested and I was very lucky this beautiful day, Brock introduced me again on stage. And you guys are going to hear in a moment some two great talks that I gave just a few weeks ago in Miami. So enjoy. My name is David Waxman. I'm here with the famous Charlie Shrimp. And I feel like we've been goaded uh, when we were sitting there <laughs> backstage. Sounds like Brock Pierce had a question that, well, I guess I got to ask. Today apparently is the nine-year anniversary of something. Yes. What is that? So today is the nine-year anniversary of my arrest. It happened today in 2014. So I don't know, um, a lot of you guys know my story. I've been involved in the, in here in Bitcoin since 2011. And in, back in those days, Bitcoin was relegated to mostly chat rooms and sometimes conferences like these, but they were just a small little room of five or six people. And we had a lot of fun back in those early days. I had one of the first Bitcoin exchanges based uh, in New York City called BitInstant and started uh, the Bitcoin Foundation with a, a bunch of amazing people. Brock was a part of that too and uh, uh, trying to revive that, which we're working on. Um, 
But on that fateful day, I'll never forget, we, we actually, there was a, the first ever Bitcoin Senate hearings were taking place that week in D.C. for the first time in six months before, the first time anyone in the federal government had any, ever mentioned Bitcoin had came out. This was 2013. Well, this, this is, of course, all because it's worth noting. And uh, by the way, the ostensible conversation here is about kind of post-FTX. Have we learned any lessons? Yeah. Um, well, at the time, there was this other, there was other exchange called Mt. Gox, and it had a, a bit of an implosion. Yeah, Mt. Gox collapsed, and same thing like FTX. It's the same, the same exact situation back in 2014. Yeah, and I, I guess one of the big differences is, at the time, it began what was a two-year bear market, worth noting, as soon as that collapsed. But up until then, Bitcoin had gone from about, what, $7 to about $1,200 per Bitcoin in 2013. Nice. Yeah, I'll never forget that, that bull market. The price went up from $100 to $1,200. We were all walking around like we were the, hot, you know, the hottest people in the room and that our shit didn't stink and, and we were going to change the world. And when Mt. Gox collapsed, Mt. Gox had the highest market share. It was like 90%. When they imploded, uh, there was no place to check the Bitcoin price. And then following that, with my arrest a few months later, uh, that started the, the bear market almost that day and the price went down to... $200 for about two years or so. And it wasn't until I remember I'd actually gotten out of, uh, of, of federal prison. It wasn't until like 2016 that the price was finally breaching 500. I had a forced hold of two years. Yeah, that I means pretty good. I'm glad you weren't able to sell during the bear market. So I joined the, the Bitcoin industry in early 2014, just after Gox. Um, you had just been arrested. And that's kind of when I was, my eyes were opened up by another New York City Bitcoin exchange called Coinsetter. Um, I know you know Jaron, um, one of the earliest VC-backed you know, Bitcoiners. And the market was very different then. I, I want to say that like, there was a passion um, that many, maybe many of you have in the audience here for the technology, for the freedom that it could conceivably provide that you, know, you don't hear a whole lot about when it comes to the hype of the overall crypto industry, of NFTs, et cetera, which have a lot of power. But it seemed to me, am I, am I wrong, that people, at Bit, the Bitcoiners were very passionate back then. There was a passion in the technology. There's a passion in like building technologies or building products to do something that couldn't be done before with the current, whether it's like an unequal playing field or the technology didn't exist or whatever it was, there was this like huge passion and love. And we lose that every bull market, it happens. We focus on, there's like that funny comic where during the bull markets, people focus on what's the price of Bitcoin and then they move over to, you know, how does crypto work or something like that during the bear markets. So now over the last year, we've had a huge self-reflection, right? We've all had to look inward of our, at ourselves and I'm sure a lot of people here were embarrassed to tell their friends and family again that they work in crypto because of what happened with FTX and everything else. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that was true before, Charlie. Um, that is to say, between the Celsius, BlockFi, Three Arrows Capital, Terra meltdown that happened in May, and uh, just before FTX, I, I think that the industry, it, at least it felt, like you weren't embarrassed, I would say, to go tell your friends. But post-FTX, with the cover boy, you know, being arrested, and of course, everything we found out about him, allegedly anyway, um, it seems like there has been a bit of a reputation hit for the industry. Yeah, there, there definitely is. And I will say that it, it's a good thing. 
you want people to think you're the underdog. You don't want people looking at you as the smartest person in the room. You don't want people looking at our industry. The spotlight is not on us anymore. And it's a beautiful thing. We can build again. We could have fun without worrying about the mainstream media, you know, scouring our own Twitter and Reddit posts and posting about every time we start yelling at each other, which happens in every industry. We need, and so that was, that's been really nice over the last few months that we've had that kind of reprieve to look back. But now, the things that are being built and launched and released over the next few months, it's astounding. Well, Charlie, another thing that we saw during, I'm going to call it not this past bull market, but the bull market before in 2017 or so, 2017, early 2018, was kind of the, for the first time, a real kind of almost, I like to say, religiosity uh, among the tribes of people. You saw people who were on ETH maxis, Bitcoin maxis, and then we started seeing altcoin maxis as well. Um, What's your stance on this? Do you think it's good for the industry to have these devoted patrons? Do you think it's a detriment? Maximalism and tribalism is not a good thing, and it's, it's mostly terrible for the person who's doing it because you're pigeonholing yourself into a position that you can now never get out of without losing your integrity. So I don't understand why it would be in anyone's best interest to put their flag and stake a claim on something that is the best in the whole world when then you can never get out of it. It's like saying, well, I don't need to give an example, but it's almost like someone told me an example. How could we ever say that there are no aliens out there when we don't have 100% conclusive evidence? It's impossible to be like a maximalist in that. However, I will go to the other side. I'm a decentralization maximalist. I believe that the reason I got into Bitcoin and the reason crypto here today and blockchain technology is for decentralized technologies building out these databases, ledgers, technologies, businesses where your assets, your money, your data can't be reversed, frozen, uh, or taken away from you. You have your sovereignty without some sort of like, maybe it's on-chain due process, right? That's why I got involved in the space. Bitcoin and everything was changing that whole world. But then, but then we focused uh, too much on, on other things, and then now we come back to that. And it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, right now, I think there's a one thing that I've certainly noticed when, when talking with clients or with, with uh, people who are simply interested, enthusiasts, is that they're wondering why decentralized matters. We've seen, for example, the rise of certain Ethereum-like well, EVM chains that are very centralized that seem to be more effective. But Charlie, maybe you could tell us a little bit about why decentralization matters to you. When you have, we go out there, if you guys go outside to all the exhibitor halls, there you see advertisements for... De uh, DeFi protocols and blockchains and really cool projects that you want to be a part of. You want to, whether it's stake your crypto or play around with it, get involved in a, in a decentralized application. And most of us are thinking that because it has the word crypto or blockchain in it, that it's decentralized. And when we think that something is decentralized, there are a lot of assumptions that come with that. No, there's not one person who has a private key that can take my money. No one can reverse it. If I own an NFT, no one can take it from me. If I'm depositing here to stake, you know, the technology is good enough that there's no central points of control. When someone promises us decentralization, we, be we become more comfortable being involved in that project or blockchain or protocol. But at the end of the day, as we've learned with these bridges and these hacks, Every day they're being hacked and falling apart, wormhole finance or whatever. We keep losing money. Why? Because they promise us decentralization, but most of the time they're not. 
most of the time, it could be a whole decentralized protocol, but there's two or three people with a private key somewhere for the whole, or an admin key. Or well, so Charlie, this is, this is complicated stuff, is the reality. What I'm, what I'm hearing here is that an average person shouldn't be able, shouldn't conceivably have the capacity have to, yeah. to do the diligence to know whether or not a bridge is sufficiently decentralized. So let me ask you this. How the hell did you learn about Bitcoin? I mean, back then, Bitcoin talk, I guess, is that the only way that was a forum? You should still go there. It's quite interesting. Um, I used to hang out in IRC. A show of anyone here used to hang out in IRC chat rooms and servers and stuff like that? Wow. I thought it would be a lot more than that, but I guess, I guess I'm getting older. So back in the early 2000s and I guess 90s, we used to hang out on the Internet Relay chat, IRC networks. And um, I hung out on uh, Freenode, which was a popular free one. But I also, it was my little, my little side job, because we all wanted to be part of the Internet, was I was in a, uh, a moderator of another... Uh, network. I think it was called like uh, evilzone.org or something like that. I forget the name of it. And there was a Bitcoin chat room in there, and it was a bunch of just the early Bitcoin people. This was late 2010. And there were just people talking, and that ended up turning into the free node Bitcoin dev chat room. And Satoshi was in that room, and all the early people. And, and then that, I mean, there's a whole mythology and like a big, a lot of data that's missing on the last days of Satoshi. And then when Satoshi left, the fledging little, our little fledging community had to take over. And it was very hard times. And uh, a lot of people have claimed to be Satoshi. They're all liars. But, but yeah, those are the early days. Okay, and well, let me ask you this. First, I, I appreciate you saying they're all liars. <laughs> As the early days of Bitcoin, well, let's talk a little bit about that and this fledgling the community. This is when the Bitcoin Foundation was established. Why? why? Why did you guys create it? So the Bitcoin Foundation, it's a great story. We, we have four and a half minutes left. I'll do it fast. We, Bitcoin Foundation was... Well, there was Peter Vesinus. There was Peter Vesinus. There was Mark Carpellis. There was Roger Veer, myself, and a couple of other people. And these were basically, we took representatives of the, the small little industry back then. You had some miners, individuals, businesses, and developers. And this, this was the community back then. Miners, developers, holders, and folks who worked in the industry. And we said, let's create like a membership trade organization that everyone can be part of, where we almost speak for our organization as a whole, and just do conferences, do billboards, advertising, and just be like because that. Back then, there was none of this. It's there was noted. nothing. Nothing like it. A Super Bowl commercial. We wanted to do, my vision and our vision was to do Super Bowl commercials for crypto, for Bitcoin, not for one company. That was the goal. And, and I feel like if we could go back to that, where we can teach people about what we do and why we do it. I bet you half these people, you go and sit down with a friend who's not in crypto or Bitcoin, and they sit down and they say, why? Like, why? Half of us can't even answer this question anymore because we lost sight of it. Well, I mean, I've had too many conversations, I'm sure you have too, where people simply don't, they, they think everything must be a scam. And then when they finally understand the concept of proof of work, it's like this aha moment. Like Love there's it. this like light switch on and they start to understand, well, maybe there's actually something to this technology. It's such a beautiful thing. And you've spent the better part of eight years helping uh, businesses and individual people like with that communication because that's what it comes down to, like communication. Do you ever, do you struggle with that? I mean, it's incredibly difficult sometimes to take a pioneering technology talking to some brilliant genius founder who can barely explain what they do because it's so intricate, the details. And now they need for this to work, 
for this to become decentralized, tens of thousands or even millions of people to not only understand what they do, to, but in some way make use of this innovation. It's, it's quite a leap, but I mean, that's the favorite part of my job, is talking to brilliant founders. I'm sure you enjoy it too. I mean, you have a, by the way, worth noting, Charlie has an epic podcast where he brings on incredible founders. You guys should all listen to it. It's called The Charlie Shrem Show. Thank you so much. Really original title. Are we still early? Yes. We're absolutely still early. There's no question about that. Charlie, I mean, you know this, I know this. The very fact that although people have heard of crypto, that they don't understand what it is, and a huge percentage of the population has never bought a fraction of a Bitcoin before a Satoshi, that just means something. I would love if there was some sort of new, I'm gonna, uh, kind of a faucet. In the early days of Bitcoin, I don't know if you guys oh, remember yeah. this, there were websites you could go to, and you simply could just like get little drips of Bitcoin. Are there no faucets anymore? I don't know. I haven't seen those anymore, but that was, it was like the way that many of us, it was the way that's, I got my first Bitcoin. Yeah, that's where I got my first Bitcoin from, Gavin's faucet. There you go. Oh my God, you're just bringing back memories now. Free, we, that's how it is. Like, it, how could you get someone to be involved in something if they have to buy it? Yeah, it, it's very difficult. There's, when something's free, it's a heck of a lot easier, yeah. right? That's what it was. It was free Bitcoin back then. And then people just... could see, man, it actually is in my wallet. And then they send it to somebody, it's actually gone. It's kind of a mind-blowing moment. I'll never forget when I first got into Bitcoin, I went to my friend's house and we sat in his room and I, I opened up. So the Bitcoin wallet, so back then you go to Bitcoin.org and you download this wallet software. It's called Bitcoin QT, dash QT. And you download it and you turn it on and it would say, and it would give you an address and it looked like an old piece of software and it would... The UI was terrible. The UI was terrible. It would give you an address and then what it would do is it would ask you, do you want to turn on incoming connections to start mining. So the software would also give you free, you were mining and running a wallet at the same time. I remember sending my friend Bitcoin, we were in the same room and it was like 50 Bitcoin and it just disappeared. And it was because he hadn't synced the whole blockchain on his computer yet. He had to sync the whole blockchain back then. Yeah, times certainly have changed. All right, well, we've only got a few seconds left, Charlie. Let me ask you this, post FTX, if you were advising the CEO of a Bitcoin exchange now, what would you tell them? I would tell them to work on some technologies that allows your customers to maintain their assets there, but out of your control. And there has to be some way to do it. There has to be to do decentralized exchanges with order book management, moving of assets, trading of assets, but those assets are kept on like self-custody. Get a hardware wallet. Thank you. That sounds like a pretty good lesson, everyone. Get a hardware wallet. Thanks, folks. Hey everyone, how's it going? Good, good. So, uh, <laughs> so excited to be here with uh, with uh, Charlie. Uh, talk a little bit about lending. It's good to be here with you. Yeah, awesome, awesome. So, uh, so yeah, so quick quick introduction. Um, so I'm Joseph Prenna, CEO of Milo, and uh, it's been a year since uh, I was on the stage and we launched uh, crypto mortgages. Uh, world's changed a little bit uh, on the real estate side, on the lending side and everything. And um, yeah, Charlie needs no introduction. So uh, some things that you don't know about Charlie maybe is that he's, uh, he's a real estate investor as well. Yeah. It's funny because uh, as you guys know, like Bitcoiners and crypto people, we only probably trust two different assets is crypto and real estate. None of us want like dollars or fiat really. I mean, that was kind of the whole ethos of why Bitcoin got started, 
But if you look at like two assets that you really can control and it's self-sovereign and it's yours and no one can take it away, especially in Florida, if someone comes onto your property, you got stand your ground or whatever, um, is just crypto and real estate. So of course, those two would go hand in hand, but you call me a real estate, uh, what'd you call me, a real estate uh, investor? Investor, yeah. It was, it was more by chance because, and this is the, the tip, is like as you guys make crypto gains and sell it, just buy real estate. That's the only thing to do. That's the best, best advice I could ever give anyone. Yeah. So we had a chance to, to chat on your podcast when, when we announced the crypto mortgage. Um, what do you think of the product? What do you think about crypto mortgages? I think crypto mortgage is a great product. So it's awesome. I'm a customer of you guys. Yep. And so there's, there's two products that you guys offer. Is not just... Uh, so we all went to like... We went, I talked earlier about FTX. We, went, we used to go to like FTX, Celsius, Voyager, all these places. We would put our money in and we would get a percentage out. And what was happening on the other side was that we thought that money was just sitting there and the company was paying us interest on it. What was really happening was they were taking that money and rehypothecating out and doing really shitty loans or venture deals or whatever. They were acting as like hedge funds with our customer deposits. Some of these exchanges just use our, our money, my money, for political donations to people I don't really like. Uh, and I don't really have a say in that. But so when we were talking, uh, you were saying how in, with, for crypto lending to, to work, that money needs to be able to just sit there and people need to be able to go and see their, whatever it is like Bitcoin, that they're gonna continue paying a mortgage on. Yeah, I mean, some, somewhere along the lines of the last five years, people forgot that that money that was posted there for loans wasn't theirs. It was the customers, right? <laughs> that, that was lost. Uh, um, you know, they all became hedge funds. And uh, that was one of the things that we thought about. And we said, well, this should be very simple, right? If someone wants a loan, you should be able to underwrite them. It's their assets. If they don't pay, then it gives you a little bit more protection. But ultimately, it's theirs, right? And it should be there if you want to pay off your loan. It's got to be there, right? You, it can't be where it's frozen, right? So on, on, on that note, you know, I guess, should crypto lending exist in, in this world? Shoot, like, I'll tell you, I got a similar question. I tried to launch a, a Bitcoin debit card in 2012, too early. And people were getting mad at me because they were saying, you're making it easier for people to sell Bitcoin. And that's not good. And my response back was, you need to have a healthy economy, a velocity of money. Money needs to constantly be moving. But you also need to give the people, and we're talking about here, if folks in our industry can't get a mortgage and buy a house, how are we supposed to work in this industry? And so every other industry has their banks. You go to like, you got Navy Federal Credit Union. They got Publix, has the Publix Credit Union. For those who aren't Floridian, it's the local grocery store. Every major business and industry has their institutions that cater to the people that work in that industry. And so when I met you, we didn't, there didn't exist. That doesn't have that. Where like, if I want to get a mortgage, I was just, I was pitching you to someone else on the phone a little bit ago. And he was like, and I was, and he works at a big, uh, crypto uh, uh, publicly traded company. And I said, if you go to a bank right now and you give them your W-2 and you tell them I work for like blah, 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 you know, capital. He's like, well, they give you, he's like, no, because they're going to look into my 
the business that I work for and validate whether that business is even a viable business. And that's not right. Yeah, yeah and I think that last year when we launched the product, there's a lot of things we wanted to learn. We wanted to understand who these consumers were, how difficult was it to really get a mortgage if, if, you, if you had Bitcoin and you had Ethereum. And we were blown away by what we saw. We saw that this was a problem for, for everyone, right? It wasn't just a couple people that were trying to get mortgages. Um, so many people were coming to us and saying, well, I had to sell my Bitcoin. I had to sell it at the worst possible time to, to be able to buy a home. And um, yep. you know, that, that's, that's very, very impactful, right, along the way. Yeah, it's filled with regrets of people who had to sell to buy something or whatever. If you can borrow against it, it's a lot better. You touched a little bit earlier on your, your presentation, um, you know, decentralization, centralization. How do you think that plays out in, in mortgage? There's a lot of, I, I, remember, I remember looking at the mortgage industry, the, 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 the financial aspects of when it comes to real estate deals and people borrowing money and just uh, uh, all over the world, you know, property development all over the world. This is a highly in capital intensive business. And I looked at that as like a perfect example of decentralization. And not just like from the borrowing and lending aspect and amazing for the collateralization aspect, but also for the servicing aspect. Imagine if you could put a 30 year mortgage into a smart contract. That smart contract now could then be bought and sold between individual people, but your money's sitting in there and every time you make a payment, more money could be unlocked and things can happen, but you don't have to trust like a centralized party. But at the same time, we were talking earlier, a lot of the requirements comes to like underwriting. So what if we had like... And, and the regulation that goes... And the regulation. So what if we had companies like yourself all over the world doing the underwriting and regulation and the onboarding, and then eventually that product gets pushed into like crypto land, but you guys can retain a percentage because you were the onboarder. And it's not just with real estate. We can do this with... Shit, we can do this with carbon credits. We can do this with ESG. We can do this with any type of illiquid. Quite frankly, any type of lending, right? Any type of any, lending. Any type of actual lending. So, so this is a little bit of like why there's, there's a lot of things that are out there in the press and what's going on, and there's a lot of negativity around it. But this is the really exciting stuff that's happening, right? With, with real-world assets, right? If you're looking at some of these protocols and what they're actually doing, which is creating this capital market system that you can leverage within the digital ecosystem um, that has a really big possibility to fundamentally change how we think about um, underwriting consumers, how can you speed up transactions, how can you do all of that, and I think that that's probably what's going to come in this next wave, and you know, we were just sort of the, the, the tip of the iceberg on, on what's possible. I think every physical asset that exists in the world today will have a digital representation that it's not just a representation, but the actual asset itself could be on chain. And it could be the title. It could be that someone was uh, the title of a car. A company was pitching that a little bit earlier, that, uh, the title about anything. But then these things could be like collateralized on your personal balance sheet. They could be annuities that you pass down to generations, things that your parents passed down to you. It'll just make, it's also, you know, charity starts at home. At, at the end of the day, when we want to be charitable to other people, we all help our friends and our family within each other. Uh, my friend, he's, a, he's an Uber driver, and he's got this little charity where 
people who come over from where he came from, from Egypt. He helps them get a job in a convenience store, and then he helps them get a job for Uber. He, he's already, my friend is struggling himself, and here he is being charitable to other people. At the end of the day, charity is not about very, very wealthy people donating large amounts of money to charities that use 90% of the money for overhead. Charity starts at home. And so we're going to see, especially in our industry, when these assets and these revenue streams that we have could be collateralized and we can lend money to our friends in an easier way. We can uh, attest, like I can be a co-signer to my friend's mortgage in a digital way with you. All these mechanisms, it really will make the world a better place because we're not going to need, and I hate to bring this back to the government, but we're not going to need the government to help us make our lives a better. Because it's not that those things are bad, but at the end of the day, it's us. We need to be working with each other. Yeah, yeah definitely there, there's, there's a lot that can happen, right? And I think that you know, lending is really about trust, right? It's, it's about giving opportunity, right? If you want to buy a home, you know, someone needs to give you the capital to be able to do that. Exactly. Um, so if there's an opportunity to be able to you know, pull that together where you can say, I can vouch for someone, right? That's, that's what you do as a co-borrower. Right, that's what potentially your Bitcoin does for you, right? Is that it says, I've got assets, right? I've, this is money yes. good, right? And I think you're going to see products where you could attest your Bitcoin for someone else's mortgage without your Bitcoin being in their custody. And then if that person doesn't pay, you get penalized. But if that person continues to pay, you'll earn a percentage of that. And then therefore you'll see small businesses starting of people starting to use their assets to co-sign other people's businesses and things like that. And because you can have the positive and the negative, it's going to work really well. Yeah, and this is where the, the real world asset element is going to drive that, right? It's, it's, it's going to be able to bring these loan assets, put them on chain where people can think about that. They can collateralize loans and they can really do better lending. Um, that, that's really already starting to play out. I think we're starting to see some, some, some good innovation there. We're so early. It's, I said it earlier. It's, it's, we're not even, we didn't even hit spring training yet. How, um, how do you think you know, crypto lending in itself, you know, outside of crypto mortgages, evolves from here? So there was, there was, an, exci there was an exciting time and so with DeFi, and it still is very exciting. And uh, decentralized finance. And there's a company out there, Beefy Finance. I even looked at them like two years ago. I had them on my podcast too. And there's a whole industry around this. So eventually lending and borrowing won't just be about real estate mortgages. It'll be, for example, there's this whole uh, terrible, terrible industry. Not, not terrible industry. It's a great industry that's filled with some bad actors that make the industry look bad. It's the payday lending industry, right? There's, there's some rough actors, but the majority is, is, is pretty good. But that industry takes 30 40% from people who are getting paid a few hundred bucks a week. They borrow against their receivables of their paycheck, and then they... That whole industry could be done over a smart contract. There's no reason that that needs as much brick-and-mortar stores, and that's where the interest rate comes from. Quite frankly, at much lower cost. Much right? lower cost. Right, you could drive that down. So that you could talk about bringing people away from poverty, but what if we could each individually become payday lenders? I, I would like to become a payday lender and lend against, like, if you are getting a paycheck from Microsoft once a week. These are all small side hustle businesses that we can all start. We can build the technologies to do these things with each other.
and, and many of these asset classes, you know, like payday lending, you know, mortgages and other, the recovery rates and the, the performance is actually very good. And that's only held in the hands of a few. So that's the other exciting part about real world assets is that you can actually now share that really attractive risk-adjusted interest with people. So it's an interesting point that you're, that you're making me think of right now. This past epic bull market and bear crash, I don't think it was our dot-com moment. I think it was our housing market moment. This was our 2008. Absolutely, absolutely. The FTXs and all that stuff, it's the same thing that happened with subprime mortgages. They took shitty loans and they rehypothecated them into these securities and then people just resold them over and over and all this and, other And everyone was facing the same counterparts. And so this was our moment. But the same way the real estate industry and housing and everyone learned from, from that, we're going to learn at the same time. What was the biggest innovation that came out of that? It was peer-to-peer -peer lending, right? It was... All the Jobs of Act too, right? Jobs Act and FinTech and Evolutions and all of these new business models. So out of the housing market, we got the Jobs Act that gave us crowdfunding, Reg A+, that allows half of us to raise money. Maybe now out of this, I hate being optimistic because I get led down. <laughs> we can be optimistic. Maybe out of all this, we'll get some goodness out of it. Maybe we'll get some like decent regulations that allow us to operate in sandboxes. Maybe it won't be as bad. And then all at the same time, if we can self-regulate ourselves, I think we'll be in a better position. Yeah, and we keep, we keep learning, right? Every chapter brings more stability, you know, brings more, more adoption. So, so one year ago, we launched a crypto mortgage. And you know, we're really excited that with everything that's been going on, and you know, we think there should be a good crypto lender out there. We think we sh there should be a good crypto loan. So, um, so as a company, we're really excited to announce you know, that we are coming out with a crypto loan product. Um, this is something that we've been working on. Uh, as a company, we've had no margin calls, right? You know, we work with our customers. We, you know, we work with great customers like Charlie. And um, so we're gonna be coming out with a product. So uh, it would be great for all of you that are interested, right, to give us the feedback, right? Tell us what's important to you. Um, and stop by our booth, you know, sign up on our website, milo.io. And we, we, wanna, we wanna hear from you because we really wanna keep evolving and building things that, uh, that you need. I think we're so out we'll, of time. Yeah, I think we're there. So, so there you go. A little little wait list there. But uh, thank you, thank you, Charlie.